Jesus, you are worthy, worthy of our best worship offered by our best musicians. Jesus, you are worthy of our best life lived in service to you. So help us now by your word. Strengthen us to follow you, Jesus, and to honor you these days. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let me uh, draw your attention to something before we open the scriptures together. Uh, we are entering a new era of generosity as a church family. We don't have a mortgage anymore, so we're giving it away. It's going to be great fun next year. The offering is called our Gen 12 offering, based on Genesis 12, where God's people are blessed to be a blessing. And we have about eight, at this point, eight targeted ministries, everything from a new playground for our kids to uh, providing meals for, on the weekends for kids in our schools who don't have them in our community. Uh, we're going to send our worship team to Tokyo for the Olympics, not to compete, but to proclaim Christ. Um, gifted athletes, though they all are. Um, so uh, I hope you're praying about that. In the next couple weeks, we want to gather our pledges for the coming year. There are commitment cards on the information wall in the lobby. If you have not gotten those by email this week, um, those, those should have been sent out to you. So make a note of that and be praying about how you can join us in this grand season of generosity that we get to do together. But right now we're celebrating Advent. We anticipate the birth of Christ and there are a number of traditions, interesting traditions. You know, over a couple thousand years, you can gather some pretty curious traditions around this holiday, especially internationally. Um, for instance, there really is a bad Santa in Austria where pranksters dress up like ghoulish creatures called Krampus. There's some, there's some examples. Um, the evil accomplice of Saint Nick, and they wander the streets in search of badly behaved children. So there's the parenting tactic for you. Uh, the pickle in the tree in Germany. Uh, very simple, find the pickle, get a gift. Obvious connection to Christ there. I'm sure you can sort that out later. Um, you can roller skate to mass in Venezuela on Christmas morning. They actually close the streets in certain parts of Caracas so people can roller skate to church on, on Christmas morning. Uh, you can celebrate a cobweb Christmas in the Ukraine where their Christmas tree decorations are based on spider webs. Um, you can always enjoy the Yule goat in Sweden, which is a kind of Santa substitute, it used to be anyway, where the goat did the gift giving. And perhaps the most bizarre one is from Catalonia. It's called the Christmas log, where children on Christmas Eve serenade and beat this log until, and I don't really know how to say it delicately, the log deposits presents and candy for the children. You can look it up. It's as weird as it sounds. Um, and if that's not enough for you, you can always go to South Africa and eat fried caterpillars on Christmas Day. So there you go. If you're looking for a new tradition, you can pick up one of those. But what I'd like to suggest today in terms of a new tradition is one that for those of us who follow Jesus is not optional. Um, it's one that as followers of Christ, we simply must embrace and enfold into our celebration of Christmas this season. This Christmas season, you simply must take the low place and serve like Jesus. Let me... Let me explain to you what I mean through a passage in the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, if you want to open your Bibles there. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul takes us backstage of Christmas, kind of a behind-the-scenes look at what is going on 
in Jesus incarnation. Incarnation is one of those big, beautiful words worth learning. It simply means to put on flesh, um, to become one of us, which is what Jesus, the Son of God, did at Christmas. He took on human flesh and became one of us. Um, in Philippians 2, Paul unfolds kind of a cascade of humility where Jesus, each step Jesus takes plunges him further and further down towards the lowest place. And the Apostle Paul says to us, also in Philippians 2, we simply must follow him there this Christmas. And so our passage begins in verse 6 of Philippians 2. This is sometimes referred to as the humiliation of Christ. As he takes these five steps, I'll break it into five steps, deeper and deeper to the lowest place. This is how it reads. Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Again, I'll break those into five steps of humility where Jesus descends. We want to walk through those together. But before we do, let's take note from where he started this descent. Um, it says there that he was in the form of God. Some of your Bibles put it this way, being in very nature God. Um, and clearly, Paul wants us to see that Jesus is God, is equal to God, and shared fully in God's glory. And as the Son of God, that second person in the Trinity, right, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he was enthroned with God um, from eternity past as God. And it's from this most exalted place that Jesus takes his first step of humble descent, and that is that he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't cling to that place, to that glory, as though it were some right that he would refuse to relinquish. Okay. And again, some of your Bibles put it this way. It says, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. And this is Jesus' first step in the descent of his humility to that low place. It's his willingness. He did not cling to privilege. He's willing to sacrifice for the good of another, even for you and me. In a sense, he is willing to abdicate a royal place of privilege to come and be with us. Something like this actually happened in real life back in Great Britain uh, in 1936, when King Edward VIII became the King of England upon the death of his father, George V, on January 20th of 1936. He's nearly 42 years old at the time he became king and an infamous bachelor. Um, Edward then made known his desire to marry an American woman named Wallace Warfield Simpson. Um, he sought the approval of his family and of the Church of England and the political establishment to marry this outsider. 
but he met with strong opposition in part because she had been married twice before and her second divorce was still pending. So their love affair and possible royal marriage resulted in sensational newspaper headlines around the world. It created a storm of controversy, but this did not sway Edward. So on December 10th of that same year, 1936, that he was crowned king, King Edward VIII submitted his abdication and was, it was endorsed by Parliament on the next day. And he became the only British monarch ever to resign voluntarily in history. He said, I have found it impossible to carry on the heavy burden of responsibility to discharge the duties of king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. And so King Edward, for the love of someone deemed undeserving, stepped down from that place of royal privilege and did not cling to it. And so too, Jesus did not count his heavenly place and privilege something to be grasped and held on to selfishly. Pastor Sam Storms gives us kind of this little summary. He says, Jesus, although existing before the world in the form of God, did not treat his equality with God as a prize or a treasure to be greedily clutched and selfishly displayed. On the contrary, he resigned the glories of heaven. The preexistent son did not regard equality with God as excusing him from the task of redeeming mankind through suffering. Now, I want you to note here, though, that this is not a new thing we're learning about our God, okay? This humble, sacrificial love of God. This is who God was and who God is and who God always will be. What Jesus is undertaking in the incarnation is simply a new and beautiful way to display the humble love of God for us. Scholar Gordon Fee says, the concern here is with divine selflessness. God, he says, is not an acquisitive being grasping and seizing, but self-giving for the sake of others. This is who our God was in eternity past, is now, and always will be. And it's put on beautiful display in the incarnation of Jesus the Son. So the first step in this descent of humility is his willingness to sacrifice in love for the good of others, even you and me. Okay. Now there's a second step. It goes beyond a willingness to sacrifice to actual sacrifice. Verse 7 says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And at some point, when this is read this way, he emptied himself, it kind of begs the question, emptied himself of what? And clearly, let me be clear here, um, the Apostle Paul is on the edge of heresy here, right? He is really close to saying something we must not say. So don't you envy my ability to say now what Paul intended to say. He does not mean that Christ emptied himself of deity. He did not stop being God when he took on our flesh and became one of us. The creeds say he was fully God and fully man. Um, clearly, he continued to be worshipped when he became a man. 
At his birth, he was worshiped, and throughout his life, he received worship, um, a prerogative that belongs only to God. So he is still God. Professor Fee points out that asking the question, what was he emptied of, is probably the wrong question to ask. It doesn't make any more sense, he says, of asking of this emptying metaphor than asking the question, what was he emptied into? It's simply not the point. He says, Christ did not really empty himself of anything. He simply emptied himself. He poured himself out. And that's why some of your Bibles read it this way. Instead of he emptied himself, it says he made himself nothing. In fact, it says that this emptying of himself happened by taking something on more than pouring something out. It says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or a slave. Um, so think of it this way. Most of you are familiar with probably um, a man named Usain Bolt. He is purportedly the greatest sprinter in history. He still holds the 100 meter and 200 meter and I think the four by one uh, world record even though he's in retirement. The dude is fast. But imagine that I paired him with you in a three-legged race and let's make it a backwards three-legged race where, where you get to run backwards. Usain Bolt is still the fastest man in the world, okay? But he has taken on limitations because he has taken on you, right? You're gonna slow him down a good bit. And so, um, in like fashion, Jesus, taking on the likeness of men, took on our limitations in many ways. He was willing he emptied himself. He made himself nothing by comparison. So this is the third step by becoming human and taking the form of a servant. He, he emptied himself, okay, being born in the likeness of men. Philip Yancey says it well. He says, how did Christmas Day feel to God? Imagine for a moment you becoming a baby again giving up language, muscle coordination, the ability to eat solid food and control your bladder. Imagine God as a fetus. Or he said, maybe imagine yourself becoming a sea slug. That analogy is probably closer, right? On that day in Bethlehem, the maker of all that is took form as a helpless, dependent newborn. And if that's not enough, it says he made himself a servant. The word there could just as easily be rendered slave. As if becoming human wasn't low enough, he didn't come as royalty, he came as a slave. Augustine helps us think about this. Long ago, St. Augustine said, our Lord came down from life to suffer death. The bread came down to hunger. The way came down on the way to weariness. The fount came down to thirst. He so loved us that for our sake he was made man in time, although through him all times were made. He was made man who made man. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy. He the word without whom all human eloquence is mute. He humbled himself in the extreme. Consider this contrast, right? This quote is from Adad Nirari II, 
the first great Assyrian king. And this is what he says of himself. I am royal. I am lordly. I am mighty. I am honored. I am exalted. I am glorified. I am powerful. I am all-powerful. I am brilliant. I am lion-brave. I am manly. I am supreme. I am noble. And of Jesus, it is said, he made himself nothing. He came, as Jesus himself would say, to serve, not to be served. There's a British pastor, his name is Matthew Hosier. He writes about a missionary friend who moved into a majority Muslim uh, culture. And he said, when we first moved to the Middle East, we heard that on festival days, everyone dresses in their best clothes and goes to visit their relatives and neighbors to celebrate and eat a feast. So for our first Eid festival, we carefully cleaned our apartment dressed up in our best clothes, got some sweets and chocolates, which are traditional to hand out to visitors, and we waited in our house. But no one came to visit. And another missionary explained to us what we did wrong. On festival days, he said, the small visit the big, and the big give out presents. For example, everyone in a family visits their eldest brother or their parents or grandparents. And when they arrive, they would kiss the hand of the older person to show respect and honor. And the host would then care for their guests by feeding them, serving them, giving them gifts like good quality chocolate, money, or other presents. As newly arrived foreigners, he says, without social standing or relatives, naturally, no one came to visit us. We are considered small by the culture, so we are the ones who need to do the visiting. He said, this incident made me ponder the awesomeness of the incarnation. In every other religion, humans, the small, try to visit God by their own strength and good works. But as much as we try to dress up nicely, we cannot be clean enough to enter his house without polluting and disrespecting it. But in the incarnation, God decided to play the role of the small. He humbled himself totally to become small so that he could visit us in our squalid house and make us able to be with him. Mild, we sang earlier, he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. There's a fourth step. It's in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. His humility makes him obedient even unto death. This kind of obedience is God's love language. Listen to what Jesus said in John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Okay. To put it more modernly, as Buttercup was amazed to discover in that great theological work, Princess Bride, when Farm Boy was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. There are no limits to Jesus' obedience or his love for his people. No limits to how low he would go for us, even unto death. In fact, we could say that Jesus was born to die. Remember Matthew 20, where Jesus said, even as the Son of Man 
came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, there's one more last step in, um, in, Jesus, in Paul's description of Jesus' humility, his descent here. And it goes beyond Paul's general reference to his death. He makes special mention of the method of death that Jesus submitted to. In verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Author Fleming Rutledge writes, crucifixion was supposed to be seen by as many people as possible. Debasement resulting from public agony was a chief feature of the method along with the prolonging of agony. It was a form of advertisement or public announcement that said, this person is the scum of the earth not fit to live, more like an insect than a human being. The crucified wretch was pinned up like a specimen. Crosses were not placed out in the open for convenience or sanitation, but for maximum public exposure, she writes. Even in Mel Gibson's The Passion, Jesus was portrayed clothed while on the cross, but she says crucifixions almost always involved stripping the person completely naked so that he was exposed and vulnerable as he hung there. Crucifixion was meant to be a long and drawn out death. People would suffer slowly suffocating in their blood for days while wild dogs circled below waiting to leap up and tear off their flesh. Pastor Trevin Wax says, a contemporary analogy, something that might invoke a little of the horror of that time would be the Nazi gas chambers where millions of Jews were stripped of their belongings, their clothing, their teeth, their hair, and then led into the showers when poisonous gas asphyxiated them. It was a shameful, barbaric way to die, but what else could communicate just how mighty the Nazi regime's war machine was? Now, he says, imagine someone walking into that gas chamber voluntarily as an act of obedience to God and then rising again after dying there so that within a generation's time, the symbol of the gas chamber could become the symbol of hope and freedom and victory. Imagine people walking around wearing gas chamber jewelry or singing, at the chamber, in the chamber, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. Or, when I survey the wondrous gas chamber, Crazy, he says, right? This is why Philippians 2 adds even death on a cross. It's not just the fact of Jesus' death that displays his humility, but the manner. He says, imagine the humility it took for Jesus to die there. Here he was, nailed to a cross by soldiers whom he created. He was raised up into the sky on beams of wood from the trees that he made. He looked into the eyes of people who killed him, and he knew their names. He knew their histories their destinies. The creator was slain by his creation. The shepherd was slain by his sheep. Talk about obedience unto death. The creator of life submitted to death. This is ultimate humiliation. And here, it's like Paul is saying, this is God. This is what God is like. 
Rethink everything you have ever thought about God and his power and majesty and watch that dying man nailed to a tree, gasping for breath and see in his death the God of self-giving love. Caesar ruled by putting others on the cross. Jesus ruled by putting himself there. The lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. So preached Charles Spurgeon. And now at last, Jesus is at the lowest place. And this, Charlie Brown, is what Christmas is really all about. The exalted Son of God taking the lowest place in love for us. Nabil Qureshi is a Muslim convert to Jesus Christ. And he had a resolutely Muslim friend named Sahar, and she was attracted to parts of Christianity, but she couldn't accept the idea of God becoming a human being. On one occasion, she honestly asked, how can you believe Jesus is God if he was born through the birth canal of a woman and that he had to use the bathroom? Aren't these things beneath God? Qureshi affirmed her questions and then asked her one in turn. He said, Sahar, let's say you are on your way to a very important ceremony and are dressed in your finest clothes. You are about to arrive just on time, but then you see your daughter drowning in a pool of mud. What would you do? Let her drown and arrive looking dignified or rescue her but arrive at the ceremony covered in mud? Her response was very matter of fact. Of course, I would jump in the mud and save her. Nuancing the question more, Qureshi asked her, let's say there were others with you. Would you send someone else to save her or would you save her yourself? And she responded, if, if she is my daughter, how could I send anyone else? They would not care for her like I do. I would go myself definitely. And then Qureshi said, if you being human love your daughter so much that you are willing to lay aside your dignity to save her, how much more can we expect God, if he is our loving father, to lay aside his majesty to save us? He left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite is grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense, free. For, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So, What's a good Christmas tradition for you to take on with your family this year? How about taking the low place and serving like Jesus? Paul presses us to do that in the verses that are right before this. Listen to what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was in Christ Jesus. And then he describes the verses we just read. It's interesting. Paul's ultimate purpose in Philippians 2 is not simply to teach us about the character of Jesus. His ultimate purpose is to teach us about the humility and character of Jesus 
so that we would follow him in humility and love. We should humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves, he says, and do nothing, nothing for selfish gain. So let's be very clear. If you are not humble, if you aren't in humility considering others to be more important than you, no matter what you are doing, if you're leading a small group or you're getting a master's degree in theology or if you're playing on the worship team, if you are not humble, you are not following Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus unless you are humble. And we are not good at this. In 2015, there was a Pew Research poll said 68% of us say that the term selfish applies to the typical American. That's who we are. We are taking so many selfies that doctors are noticing an increase in a particular kind of carpal tunnel syndrome they are calling selfie wrist. It's a thing. Social media went absolutely crazy when Princess Meghan Markle humbly closed her own car door. <gasps> she closed the door herself and social media went nuts. We are beyond not good at this. And God has been very clear to us through his servant Paul. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant or more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this Christmas season, what will it look like for you to embrace a new Christmas tradition and take the low place? Like Jesus. Will you open your home to someone in need? Will you serve your family in some new way? Your neighbors? The people in your office? The people where you go to school? See, to grow in steady Christ-like humility and not simply make this a tradition that comes down with the ornaments on December 26th, I would commend to you three things. Three things to embrace Christ's humility and follow him in it. First of all, you have to train yourself to take the low place by serving repeatedly in a low task. Find a low task you can do over and over. It must be low. It must be something that is someone else's responsibility or no one's. It should be beneath you, or at least you think that it is. So I'm talking like cleaning toilets and office kitchens and straightening up a school classroom when everyone else leaves it destroyed. I'm talking about laundry and dirty dishes and taking out trash and yes, diapers, lots and lots of diapers. Okay. And it must be low and it must be repeated. This is not a one-time thing where you serve one time and, and say, look at me, me and Jesus. This, this, this is going to take refinement over time. Do it relentlessly until God sets you free from it. Remember what Jesus taught his disciples after he washed their feet. He said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
You have to train yourself to take the low place by serving repeatedly in a low task. Secondly, you must pray. You must pray and ask God to make you humble. You must be brave and pray this prayer because you cannot do this yourself. We are not good at humility for a reason. Sin has bent us in on ourselves in a way that unless God gives us freeing grace, we become the center of our universe. So memorize and pray these verses out of Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Lord, help me. Help me in humility count others more important than myself. Help me look not just to my interests today, but also to the interests of those who are around me. Help me, God. Help me be humble. This week on our leader blog, you'll find it on the front page of our website if you haven't subscribed yet. I'll post each day a prayer of humility. Make it yours. Pray it. Let it stimulate your own prayers in this way. So you have to train. You have to pray. And perhaps most importantly, you have to look to Jesus Look at his example. Look at how low he went in love for you. Repent of your evil self-orbit and take the low place and serve like Jesus. I love the way Pastor John Piper puts it. He says, that is where our humility comes from. We feel overwhelmed by God's grace, grace in the cross. Christians are stunned into lowliness. Freely you've been served. Freely serve. So one of the prayers that I'll post this week on the blog is a lengthy one, and it doesn't even mention humility, but it's all about humility. And I'd like for us to pray it together as I close my message. It's called the Litany of Humility. And Would you stand with me as we pray this prayer together? I'll do the first line, and then you do the little bolded response throughout this prayer. And again, it's pretty lengthy, and I think you may find yourself in it somewhere, so keep an eye out. Let's pray it together, all right? Oh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being falsely accused, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus that others may be loved more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen 
and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be praised and I unnoticed. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be preferred to me in everything. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. We want to continue in prayer now, but I'd like you to do it seated and bowed before the Lord in an attitude of prayer. So if you go ahead and be seated. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of humility.